0: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Am I on? You can hear me? Yeah. Great. Good. Oh, there we are. <clears throat> okay. Well, as has been mentioned now on a couple of occasions, we are starting our new series on Luke. Woo. Yeah. Woo. Yes, you've warmed them up, Ian. Well done. Great. Yes, I can feel this much more than normal. Well done. Keep going. Um, yes. Yeah, so what we're planning to do is we're going to preach our way through the entire gospel of Luke. I'm not doing all that this morning. You understand? So don't panic. <laughs> Don't panic, I can see the fear in your eyes. No, it's, it's fine. We're going to take little chunks of it. We're going to read our way through the entire gospel and then preach uh, uh, as we go. And uh, I just want to be absolutely clear. When we talk about Luke, not this one. <laughs> I'm sorry, if you've come thinking this is a Star Wars convention, you're going to be very disappointed. <clears throat> I just suddenly thought, you know, if, if you say Luke to the average person now in the street, that's who they're going to think of, isn't it? So I'm sorry if that's why you come. Uh, That's not what we're doing. No, today what we're going to do is I want to try and give you a really thorough overview of Luke because we're going to be spending some time in this gospel going through the detail of the scriptures. So I just want to ask the kind of who, what, why, where questions today. You know, Who was Luke? Why was it written? Um, What's the kind of cultural background of it? How does this gospel differ from other gospels? And, uh, you know, when you read your Bible, context is king. You know that. When you read it, you need to read the scripture in the context of what's been said before and after. But also, I think, you need to know the cultural and historical context. Because this material is 2,000 years old. And one or two things have changed. Some things not, to be honest. But actually, a number of things have changed. And we need to understand Context. Let me give you an example of why context is so important. If you take a scripture that many of you will know well, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Who knows that scripture? Yeah. If you get the context wrong, it totally changes the meaning of that. So um, today, often, that is used as an excuse for vindictiveness. You've done this to me, I'm going to hit you. Because it says eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, and it's in the Bible, so I'm having a go. It's kind of what they... That is not the context. When that scripture was first given, it was given as an instruction to judges to help stop feuding. Because yeah. what was happening was people were falling out. And because you've stolen one of my sheep, I'm going to steal two of yours and then I'm going to kill some... And suddenly a feud. And off it went. And these things were going on and on. So the judges were told, when these come before you, this is the, this is the rough rule of compensation. An eye for an eye. So, if you have stolen one of my sheep and you come where we go to court, I have to. If you have stolen one of mine, you have to give me one of yours, and then that's an end to the matter. Justice has been done; it has been seen to be done. You're satisfied. I'm satisfied. End of no feud. So it's a way of bringing peace. Do you see the context is really important to understanding that scripture? So that's why we're going to spend a morning. This morning, just looking at cultural context, historical context. So sit back, enjoy your popcorn. Oh, you haven't got any. And enjoy. The other thing I tell you I want to do this morning, apart from giving you that, is I want to really work hard to try and convince you about the quality of this gospel. The sheer overwhelming quality of it. As I've researched it, I realize this is an outstanding piece of work. From um, a literary point of view, from a historical point of view, from a research point of view, it's really the, the kind of research techniques are almost quite modern that uh, Luke has employed. The effort and the care that he's taken, this gospel is full of integrity and uh, actually it's also full of a desire, passionate desire to make Jesus known to people. It is magnificent. It's a high-quality piece of work, and it has been proven because there are a number of people who've had quite a pop at Luke over the years. Many of them British, unfortunately, and they've they've tried to throw mud at Luke. But as time has gone on, Luke has been exonerated and proven to be correct again and again and again. Just from a historical point of view, we can say this is an outstanding document. So I really want to try and convince you Almost not by faith, but by evidence. I want to convince you that this is a great gospel. Okay, I would just like to uh, read the first four verses with you. So this is how Luke opens, and uh, here, here they are. So this is what he says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who, were, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. We get something of Luke's heart immediately in that. He is basically saying, I am going to work really hard to make sure you have an outstanding account of what's happened. So uh, we kind of see his methodology and we see his intention straight away in that. Okay, so we will come back to that scripture. Let's ask this question though. Who was Luke? Who was Luke? As we've Established his name is not Skywalker. So who was he then? Well, we know him to be Paul's traveling companion. As you know, Paul traveled around the the Mediterranean region, the Roman world at the time, very extensively, preaching the gospel. Didn't he? You know this, yeah? Yeah, Yeah, and he, he traveled an awful lot, spent many years doing that, and Luke often went with him. He was a very faithful traveling companion to Paul. Um, In fact, uh, uh, Paul writes sometimes about how people would abandon him on these trips and leave him in real difficult situations. But about Luke, he writes, no, he's a faithful friend. This man continually stuck with him throughout the difficulty. So he was a very good friend, I think we can say, uh, to Paul. What else do we know about Luke Uh, He wrote two books of the New Testament, obviously the gospel that we're going through, but also the book of Acts. He had a sequel. His first one was so popular, they said, hey, you've got to bring out another one. So he did, um, although he probably wrote them at a similar time, actually. So that means, I read, he wrote 28% of the New Testament by words. Now, most of us would think, yeah, Paul is the overwhelming writer. He wrote 31%. So Luke and Paul actually are very significant in terms of the overall content. Although, to be fair, Luke was writing about Paul quite a lot. (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, no, we we recognize that. Very significant, important contributor uh, to the New Testament. What else can we say? Well, he's not an eyewitness. Now, this is really important because the other gospel writers were... Mark, we think, was written, uh, was, was, was uh, Peter's account of how things happened. And obviously, John and Matthew uh, were, were disciples. So they sat down and they remembered what they remembered and wrote it down. Luke wasn't there. He didn't see all that. He didn't sit, as far as we know, under the teaching of Jesus. He was not one of the original 12 uh, 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 disciples. He was not an apostle. He didn't have that kind of authority, so actually, what he's had to do here is he's had to work really hard to compile this uh, gospel, and uh, he writes about how he's done that. So he goes back to the narratives. So, in other words, there were there were a number of written accounts at that time, almost certainly including Mark's gospel. That was probably inexistent and possibly uh, Matthew. But there were probably other bits uh, that had been written at the time that were reliable, which we don't have today. It's also likely that these weren't all written accounts. Because it was an oral tradition, wasn't it, Israel at that time? So the likelihood is he went back and interviewed some of the original people who were involved. It's possible... Possible that he went back and, and interviewed a very elderly Mary. But that's why we get so much detail about Mary in Luke's gospel and her encounter with the angel. And then she would have known the story about Elizabeth, Zechariah. whole. He goes into great detail there that others don't. So he, he has three sources. He has the, the, the original written material. He goes back and does some interviews, we think, with people. And he also says, and I've been closely following things for some time. So he has been compiling some information himself. That's a very modern way of constructing something. Generally, as far as we know, that didn't happen. And as a result of this, there are all sorts of things that come into Luke that just don't appear in other Gospels because he's been so thorough. So things, how about this? The parable of the Good Samaritan. It's only Luke. Uh, a number of parables. The persistent widow. The barren fig tree. Jesus' is meeting with Zacchaeus. It's Luke. He's the one that's researched that, found that out, drawn that into the scripture. There's an incident with Mary and Martha. Only in Luke. How about this one? The thief on the cross. It's only Luke. Actually, what that shows you is much of what we know as the Christian story has come from this man's work. So he's this kind of investigative journalist of the ancient world. I can sort of describe him like that. And uh, basically, the, the two books he then produced are considered to be so good that they are immediately included in the canon of Scripture. Quite quickly are introduced Canon of scripture, that's a really poncy theological term, isn't it? Um, that means the books of the Bible are meant to be in there. Sorry, there we go. Um, yeah, so, he's, so because he is not an eyewitness, it's meant he's had to work really hard at compiling something. And so he's got, had lots of different accounts in front of him. And he's said, right, does that one uh, have to square with that one? And how does that fit? And he's produced this excellent uh, document. What else can we say? Uh, We don't have uh, definitive evidence, but the likelihood is that he comes from Antioch in Syria. I thought I'd just put a little map up. Everybody loves a map, don't they? So I'll put that up. Um, So you can see where Judea is down there. And you've got Galilee at the top. So that's kind of modern-day Israel. And then obviously here is Antioch. That's near modern-day Aleppo, if that means anything. And uh, Antioch was where they planted a church Obviously, outside of Israel, and it did really, really well. Antioch was a big base for mission and for teaching and the prophetic, and it was a really successful place. So it's thought most likely that's where it came from. We all right. Is it warm in here today? It is a bit warm, isn't it? No? Actually, you shouldn't ask people that, should you? Because everyone will say yes, no, or maybe. Well, have a glass of water if you're hot. So, <laughs> Okay. So that's where we think he came from. This is important too. It's thought that Luke is the only Gentile writer in the entire Bible. And um, uh, that is important because you see him work really, really hard to try and explain this gospel message to people who are not Jewish He's trying to, to make it understandable for, for the whole world. Because they all spoke Greek at that time. So um, he's, he's trying to kind of put the Greek flavor into this gospel. So that it will make sense to people outside of Israel. So he dates things, for example, by Roman events. Uh, he re- references Caesar Augustus. He references Caesar Tiberius. So people in the wider world would say, oh, yeah, I see. But if you'd said, oh, yeah, King Herod, many in the wider world would have said, who? But Caesar, oh, I've heard of him. I know what's going on now. Matthew, in absolute contrast, who's going to the Jewish people. That's his audience in mind. That's the gospel. And he doesn't reference any Caesars, certainly at the beginning. Because actually, if you want to irritate the Jews, talk about the Romans. It'd be like going to a Man United conference and starting talking about you know, Man, Man City. Everyone would say, what are you talking about? I thought that was quite a good analogy. Actually. <laughs> Obviously not. Still, there we are. Oh, well. It's a little victory for me, I thought. <laughs> so, yeah. so so, uh, so, we see Matthew absolutely appealing to everything. So, Matthew opens with... Uh, Jesus, the son of David, King David. And then he talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Well, you don't get more Jewish than that. So Matthew is tying Jesus into, look, the Jewish nation, see how Jewish he is. Luke is doing the opposite. He's saying, hey, see how he applies to all of you. We've got to be careful with that too, actually, church. There are enough barriers in the way to people becoming Christians without us shoving a load more in using language that people don't understand. Don't talk about the blood of the lamb to people who don't understand it. They'll say, what? Just try and explain Jesus in ordinary words. Okay, so we mustn't get religious. So um, Luke, for example, cuts out words like Abba or Rabbi. They're Jewish words. People wouldn't understand them outside, so he doesn't use them. He instantly translates them into something uh, Greek, Uh, um, What else does um, Luke do? Well, he refers to Jesus being the light uh, for the Gentiles. He picks up the Isaiah reference that salvation has come for all flesh and not just the Jews. You see him working really hard at saying, hey, here you go. And uh, I think, you know, you see this same technique kind of done today. Because he is a Gentile, he has a heart for the Gentiles. It's a bit like... um, Did anybody see that Rio Ferdinand thing, being mum and dad? Oh, okay. That doesn't work, does it? (laughs) Talk about translating it to the right language. I'm just going to avoid that then. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know that's really disappointing? (laughs) Anyway, okay, well, we'll move on. Did you? Well, we'll chat about it afterwards. So that's <laughs> We're among the heathen right now. They wouldn't understand. <laughs> okay, so let's move on quickly. What else do we know about uh, Luke? Well, he was thought to be a doctor, a medical doctor, a physician, and, um, uh, which is interesting in its own right. When you think of... Pre-medieval medicine. Ooh, I'm not sure we fancy being treated by someone who was trained in pre-medieval. And if, Well, I wouldn't, to be honest. I mean, I don't know what comes into your mind when you think of medicine from that period, but something like this comes into mind, you know, a kind of... <laughs> Here is the doctor. I have brought my club and a leech, and I will sort you out. <laughs> you think, oh, please, no. Actually, to be fair, that's really unfair. That's really unfair to have that image in our mind because um, uh, Hippocrates had been around, where we get that modern-day Hippocratic Oath. He'd been around 400 years earlier, and he'd begun training physicians. So um, so I think it started with him. And uh, they already had to go through training to be a a physician. And you needed skills. You needed to be observant. You needed to be analytical. And you needed to be really careful in your record-keeping, even by then. I dread to think what the outcomes of those things would be, but nevertheless, those were the skills that they were developing. And um, you see all of those reflected in his gospel. All of those skills, this careful observation, even sometimes little details. So um, uh, somebody is ill. Um, uh, Peter's mother-in-law is ill. The other gospels refer to a fever. He, as the doctor, refers to it as a high fever. He understands what it is. Little details uh, he would observe. So he talks about uh, when Jesus is on the cross, is carrying the cross, he he observes the women and they were crying. Just little details come in to his um, understanding. So, um, uh, yes, so we see his uh, background there. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time on this. Luke, you know, in the last hundred years has gained an increasing reputation for being a very good historian. And um, this has come about, really, because so many historians, again, these cynical British historians generally, um, over the last 150 years, have just assumed that Luke has got his facts wrong. And they've thrown lots of mud at him. And uh, here are some of the criticisms over the years. They've said, well, there's no independent evidence that the Romans ever held a census. So, you know that stuff in Luke 2, where it says Mary and Joseph had to go and be taxed because there was a census. They said, no, that's rubbish. There was no evidence of that at all. There was no evidence, they said, um, that anyone had to return to their ancestral home for this kind of tax enrollment purpose. They also argued that uh, Quirinius, who's mentioned by Luke in Luke 2, was not governor at Syria at the time that Luke referenced. They said he was 7 BC. So this is evidence that Luke's got his facts completely wrong, they said. And then this, there was war over this last one. Would you believe something as small as this? There has been war over the use of titles. So... um, uh, he, he he refers to a guy called uh, Lysanius being the Tetrarch of Abilene in the 15th year of Tiberius. And uh, this created, um, this was even referenced apparently in the Encyclopedia Britannica as a reason why you couldn't really believe Luke. Um, I didn't quite put it like that, it was a slightly posher way of phrasing it, but that's really what they meant. Um, and I have to say, all four of these now have been disproved. Yeah. All of them have been disproved. As as Time Team got busy with their, you know, the archaeologists with their little trowel, and they went out there, and they started to dig around. And much to their horror, they have found that Luke was spot on on all his details. So um, uh, they found, for example, uh, that uh, some papyrus were found in Egypt. And it outlined how to conduct a Roman census. It was actually on a piece of papyrus, and it was introduced by Caesar Augustus. And uh, they hold this census, uh, held this census every 14 years, and they wanted regular taxpayer enrollment. That's what they were after. Absolutely happened. Yes, there is now evidence that people returned to their home. Whole big theories were made out about why this was wrong. They said, well, it, economically, it would be far too difficult to get people moving around, and we couldn't have that, and the Roman world would have collapsed. Rubbish. Absolutely, as Luke said, it happens. They have found evidence that Quirinius, yes, he was governor 7 BC, but it was also pops up again, 6 A.D. So it seems like he was asked back for a second term. So the likelihood is Luke was spot on again. And then this last one, this last one, ooh, ooh. (laughs) The reason they said this was such garbage was because the only Lysanias that had been heard of was a king who was executed by Mark Antony in 34 BC. And uh, far from... You know, that, that was why they said it was a load of rubbish. But actually what happens, the archaeologists found an inscription on a temple from the time of Tiberius naming Lysanias as the Tetrarch of Abela near Damascus. They had to eat their words. I tell you, there is a whole big field about archaeology in the Bible. But as more and more of it is being unf- we recognize the accuracy consistently of scriptural comment. And actually, particularly with Luke, because Luke really puts himself out there. He names something like 50 different cities and countries. He names loads of people. He gives very specific detail and titles to them. He talks about tetrarchs and proconsuls and polyarchs and really specific stuff. Increasingly, we see Luke was spot on, spot on, despite the nonsense that's being said just want to reference this one guy, Sir William Mitchell Ramsey. He's one of these uh, cynical guys. He was born in uh, 1851, and he was determined to prove that Luke was a pile of garbage. So he decided, well, I'm going to go and do lots of archaeological digs, and he took himself out to the Mediterranean and the Middle East. And as time went on, he discovered that Luke was absolutely on the money, and then produces a book to the horror of his friends who thought he was going to prove beyond doubt that the New Testament was a load of rubbish. He then says, no, this is spot on. Absolutely spot on. But, and after 30 years, I understand he became a Christian in that time as well. And writes this, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. This author should be placed along with the greatest of historians. It's a real. I mean, this guy was right up there as one of the eminent archaeologists. Died in 1939. This fella. So I just want you to be confident. You know, the cynics have been proved wrong again and again and again. And I'm so pleased. I can't can't help feeling a bit smug, if I'm honest. But okay, what else do we know about Luke? Well, uh, he's also an excellent writer. The quality of this man's written Greek, apparently for those who read it, say it is right up there. Use of vocabulary is outstanding. Uh, He has a real ability to take the reader from one plot to another. So it's very readable. Um, And uh, apparently uh, his uh, description in the Book of Acts of, of the shipwreck on Malta is considered to be an absolute ancient world literary masterpiece. Beautifully written. His, his Greek was outstandingly good. In contrast to dear old Peter, who is described as an unschooled fisherman, and when he writes the Greek, apparently, boy, do you know it. I imagine when he started to write, they said, can you not let Luke do it? Because he's really good. Bless him. But we honour Peter, though, don't we? <laughs> Quickly, he says. <laughs> Yeah, an excellent, uh, an excellent writer. Okay, now this is a big question we need to ask. If we're going to understand this gospel, remember I read you the first four verses? And you remember he says, and he writes to this most excellent Theophilus. Sounds like, a bit like a Lenny Henry joke, this name, doesn't it? But it's, who is Theophilus? Wouldn't it be helpful in terms of the cultural context to understand who this man is? It would, wouldn't it? Yeah, we haven't got a clue. We have not got a clue. And in the absence of proper fact, um, theories spring up like mushrooms under a rock. I mean, it's just extraordinary. (laughs) Uh, So I'll go through a few that uh, have been uh, thrown around. And then I'm going to tell you the one that I think um, is nearest, as far as we can tell. So um, people have said, well, uh, because his name, when it's translated, means uh, God-friendly, or a friend of God, or um, God-inquirer. Because perhaps what Luke is doing, he's using a kind of literary trick. And he's basically saying, whoever's interested in God, you are Theophilus. So come and read this gospel to find out about who God is. Do you see what I mean? It's, that was thought, quite likely, at, at one point. Um, Uh, Another idea is that uh, Theophilus was some kind of ancient world publisher interested in Christianity. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Another person said, no, we think um, uh, he he was a Jewish guy who accepted uh, the Christian faith. And he was very disturbed by the tensions, growing tension, between Orthodox Judaism and Christianity. And so he's now doubting it, so Luke is writing to try and help him. Okay. Um, this, though, is probably the favorite out of all of them. And I was comforted the other day because I heard Phil Moore talking about it. I thought, ah, good. So this, this is uh, the most likely explanation it's thought that Theophilus was actually Paul's defense lawyer, or even the judge at his forthcoming trial. So what is happening is that this defense lawyer, who may well have been a Christian, we don't know, um, needed lots of really good information in order to defend Paul properly. Um, so he would, it would needed to know, you know how did this religion start, who was the founder, how did Paul come to be part of it. And it would explain, if that's right, a number of things. The Roman authorities in, in the Gospel of Luke are presented as very sympathetic to this new religion. And uh, both in the trial of Jesus and in Paul, um, there are three statements saying that these men are innocent. So uh, Pilate says three times that Jesus is innocent. And then the Roman authorities say over Paul, he could have gone free if he hadn't appealed to Rome. That was the kind of legal system of the day. So, so in this gospel that's going to be used by this defense lawyer, Paul is, uh, uh, Luke is making it very clear what the Roman authorities have already said over Paul. This guy is innocent. So, if this is right, this whole gospel and arguably the book of Acts was written to help get Paul out of prison. It's a kind of legitimate jailbreak, if you like. <laughs> and that's why it necessitated so much work by Luke. So what, what happened um, with Paul, just so you get the perspective, he's arrested, he's in Caesarea, we think. Uh, he's got about two years in prison. He then appeals to Rome. He's then shipped to Rome, and there's another two-year period. So you've got four years. And it's thought it's in that period that Luke does all his research and work and starts to produce all this material. Also would explain, of course, why the book of Acts ends in the kind of limbo. Have you ever wondered about the, the end of A- why does it just end just before the trial? Well, because that's where they got to, we think. How are we doing? Are we alright? Yeah. Good. Good, good, good. Okay, so Um, The other issue, of course, that um, uh, uh, Luke may well have felt was actually it's not just Paul on trial. It's actually Christianity itself is now on trial in the Roman world. So Luke is thinking, I have got to get this right. I have really got to do the very best job that I possibly can because Paul's defense lawyer needs it. But also the wider world needs to understand clearly what has happened here. So no pressure, Luke. <clears throat> Just make sure it's good. And of course, the, the, the result of this pressure that Luke is under, and he uses all his considerable ability and skills and research, he, he puts all of that, pours it out into these two books. And of course, the result is we have this incredible history now passed down, generation to generation. We are presented with this amazing gospel and its sequel full of truth, full of accuracy. A man who has said, I have gone as hard as I can to make sure this thing is as accurate and as precise as I can get it. Church, it's given to us. What a thing has been handed to us. This incredible gospel. Yeah, well, I'm excited about it. (laughs) We've got to study this book. We've got to be assured that this is a reliable book that's stood the, the, the test of time. So let's make sure we get the uh, full benefit. Just want to touch then very briefly on themes themes um, that uh, uh, seem to appear. This, these are the kind of themes that people have noticed uh, that uh, um, come up in the, in the Gospel of Luke. So um, I've already mentioned the emphasis on reaching Gentiles. But Luke seems to have a particular eye for the teachings of Jesus uh, for outcast groups. So he mentions lepers and tax collectors, prostitutes, Samaritans, sinners in general really. He makes sure those stories are included. People have said he almost seems to have a bias in favor of the poor, referencing a number of stories that touch on poverty. Uh, People have observed that he's very inclusive of women. He uh, uh, talks about 10 women that are not mentioned anywhere else. And he seems to notice little details. Uh, it's almost like he can see it through a female perspective. and writes the, So there's that incident with Mary and Martha. He makes sure that's included. That's what's been commented. People have also said Luke's gospel is called the charismatic gospel. There's more reference in Luke about the Holy Spirit than in Matthew and Mark combined. He talks about the Holy Spirit. He talks about how uh, Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. He talks about how Jesus comes out of his temptation in the power of the Spirit. He references that again and again and again. And, um, yeah. Obviously, then Acts starts, doesn't it? With the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luke also has an emphasis on evangelism. Ian, you'd be glad to know. Um, The verb to save is used more in Luke than in any other New Testament book. He tells us, today, he says, is the day of salvation. You get that sense of urgency about the gospel that comes through. So, I guess my response then is to tell you about the gospel. I want to tell you about the most incredible story that is ever told. I want to tell you about life and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, this gospel of Luke tells us everything that we need to be saved. It tells us that salvation is available to everyone who believes. The Bible tells us, you know, that we all need to be saved. We have all sinned and we all need to be saved. That's what I say to you, if you don't know this God, sin is a really important matter. It's kind of something that our society laughs at a bit. But no, sin, God tells us, is really important because it separates you from God. It puts a great big wall between you and the living God. And sin is not something you you can sort of be nice, you can do some charitable works and say, well, I've sort of balanced things up. No, you can't get rid of your sin. And you need freeing. And actually, it's only God that can help you to get rid of that sin. And that's why he sent his only son, Jesus. And he took the punishment for your sin on the cross. And that's the good news for you today, that your sin can be dealt with, and you can have restoration with God. So I just want to say to you today, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, Maybe that's a a new thing for you today. I want to say to you, you can have forgiveness. It's an amazing offer. Why don't we close our eyes together? If you've never received Jesus into your life, if you've never asked him to forgive you, your sin if you've never accepted him as your lord and savior uh, there's a great opportunity for you to do that today i'm just going to pray a prayer and if you want to get to know this god why don't you just repeat it quietly in the in the, the silence of your own heart so jesus i believe somehow that you are the son of god I believe that you died on a cross 2,000 years ago. And I don't understand it all, but I know that you took my sin. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to wash me clean. I receive you as my Lord. I'll do that right now. Father, I thank you that you love me and that you're for me. Help me to get to know you more and more as the days and weeks go on. i pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, church, well, look, um, that gives you a brief overview, and it is only a brief overview, but hopefully that gives you some real context to what it is we're going to be studying and the background to it there's loads more that you can do particularly on the archaeology side Just there's some excellent books out there that can help you God bless you